This episode is sponsored by Vulture, high-performance cloud compute, bare metal, and storage in 25 locations all over the world. Sign up and get $200 free credit to use in 30 days at getvultr.com slash L-A-D. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. Dalton, you've got something for us to talk about today. So, if you ask around the Linux community, there's a lot of people who are using Linux just because they're afraid that other options namely macOS or Windows, are going to lock them in and then do something so terrible that they'll want to leave, but they just can't. Which is different from, I use Linux because I like Linux, in the same way that regular doomsday preppers change their eating habits and stock up on food, but they usually don't leave society to do that. So what does the software vendor have to do to get you to leave their platform? And do you prep for that? I think I do prep for that. Not in terms of maybe software, but in terms of like the way that I build infrastructure and stuff. I've spoken about it before on uh, the other shows in that I don't want to build something in such a way that I'm locked into one ecosystem. So, for example, on my iPhone, I don't use iCloud Photos. I back that up to Nextcloud. And I'm fairly comfortable that that's all stored as flat files so that I could pull them back out if needed, if something went wrong with the Nextcloud install. So... I guess there are ways in which I do it, but I don't do it because I'm afraid that I might get locked into an ecosystem. I guess I do it more because it feels like the right thing to do for some reason. So that sounds more like, yes, you are prepping, but just regular prepping. Like, yeah, Apple's going to do something bad someday. We know that. You know, they're going to lock your account or just give you some other scare. Like, that's just going to happen to everyone at some point, as far as I can tell. Yeah, but I don't avoid using an iPhone just because of that reason. I just take what I would deem reasonable precautions Mm -hmm. and keep my valuable data, like photos of my family and stuff, in a place that I have control over them. I'm like Gary. I use, like, Google Photos, for example. I do use it, but it's not the sole place I keep my photos. And when I was running my IT support business, I had a couple of people because, you know, they transitioned from it's free forever. Of course it's not to you have to pay now. And people like, oh, I want to get my photos back out of this. How do I do it? And if you go through that process, that is a pain. Basically, you can strip down all the photos as flat files, but they don't have the original naming scheme and there are JSON files accompanying them. And some uh, clever souls written a script that tries to reapply the naming scheme and like the EXIF data and everything that's partially in the JSON files. But for a long time now, I remember it twigged when one of my friends was running Sonos and one of his speakers was end of life. I was like, I never want to be in that position where I've got an investment in something that I'm at the mercy of the decision of someone else. I want to be able to move anything that I've got somewhere else. I've never consciously used Linux because I fear that. I just try and strike a happy medium that, you know, for example, with the M1 Macs, which we've done to death, (laughs) I could move over to an M1 Mac because I've got the flat files. A lot of the software that I use would probably still be available. And if anything looked like it was becoming tied to anything, then I would hesitate and I would try to use it in the way that I do use stuff like that, which is I don't have anything tied up there and I can pull back out whenever I like. I am totally tied into Google at this point, Google Drive and Google Docs. 
all of the show prep that I do is in Google Docs so that I can swap between devices really easily. And I have often thought about this, that that's probably a bad idea, but I'm just too lazy, I guess, to uh, do anything about it. But by being tied into the Google ecosystem and being trapped by them, it frees me up to use any device. And so I can use an iPad, a Mac, Linux. I wouldn't really want to use Windows for that, but I could do if I wanted to. All I need is a browser, essentially. I think what's quite scary is I remember reading a few times where people have had their Google account suspended. And it can be something innocuous that you've done. Because as far as I'm aware, for example, they they obviously do like hashing against all the files. And they know that loads of people have copyrighted material, but they don't care. I mean, that's not their official policy, but they don't care until you generate some kind of sharing link for that file. And then suddenly you'll find your account gets slammed down on. And the accounts that I've read, and obviously people aren't willing to share what they've actually been doing on their Google account to get there, but to then turn around to Google and say, give me my account back, they can be quite difficult at doing that. And they, they won't even have a discussion with you very easily about why it's happened and give you like a chance to get rid of something that might have been violating the policy. I remember I was a bit more like Joe a few years ago, and that's when I decided to build a simple ZFS mirror, put my files locally, back them up in a way that I could bring up a system to pull them. And it's just a movable feast. So like with Google Photos, I double back up everything that's on there elsewhere so that if it went away tomorrow, I'd be like, okay, that's annoying because my family are not as tech savvy as me. And Google Photos is a good way to share things around that they understand, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I've lost that because I don't have it anywhere else. But I think it's funny that we've not really talked about anything really operating system specific here. And that was kind of the angle you were coming at, Dalton. Do we use Linux to avoid this? Well, it's not really about the operating system anymore, is it? It's much more about the services that you connect to from that operating system. Absolutely. The problem is, I mean, at least for me, that even those services that you connect to from the operating system just work better in Windows or macOS, at least for me, which is kind of a bummer because we've got all these web-based services. We've got hardware decoding in the browser and hardware encoding and all of these things. And still, they manage to make Electron apps that work better on Windows or macOS than Linux. And that's annoying, but it, it's still an option to get out if we ever need it, which is kind of nice, I suppose. Yeah, this is the thing that I find. Actually, in terms of most of the desktop apps I use, they're available on uh, with Linux and macOS. I haven't touched a Windows machine in quite a while, but I use the same apps interchangeably on a day-to-day -day basis, both on my two work machines and my personal machines. And the thing that I'm really scared of being locked into is just mostly cloud services, to be honest. And I take extreme lengths to make sure that they are backed up somewhere in a format that I can get to. So maybe some of the applications aren't quite as good on Linux as they are on the other platforms, but they are there. And I can do my job interchangeably between any machine that I like at this point. That seems like a big win more than anything. I didn't really expect to get there out of this, but <laughs> man, that's really cool. I think that's uh, a very good thing for open source Linux, just all of it in general. Well, yeah, it's a double win, isn't it? Because you can 
use Linux on the desktop to connect to these services, and then you can use Linux on some sort of headless box to be the alternative, to be the next cloud. There's nothing stopping you backing stuff up to Google Drive and Nextcloud at the same time, is there? Well, that's exactly what I do. I've got some of my files in Google Drive because I know that it's yeah, going to be accessible from anywhere. And that if my home internet connection goes down, I can still get to Google Drive. But equally, I mirror those Google Drive files onto my NAS at home. And Nextcloud is just my main single source of truth for both things. I've seen that work really well. Like uh, the Synology NAS that I have supports mirroring all that stuff just with a GUI. Of course, you can do it via the command line. But if I wasn't such a lazy... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have the same kind of setup as you, Dalton. I have the Synology NAS, which keeps my Google Drive files locally, and I back those up to elsewhere. And then I rsync the files from my server across to it as well, so that my next cloud is backed up somewhere secure. So I think that we are quite fortunate now to be in a position where there are a whole bunch of ways that you can avoid this kind of vendor lock-in. Uh, and maybe they are the ways that we doomsday prep at this point. I was just going to ask that, are we the baddies? Are we the doomsday preppers? <laughs> well, there's nothing <laughs> inherently bad about preparing for doomsday. No. And it is similar, isn't it? That it's all about redundancy. It's all about having a couple of power systems, if possible. It's all about having a bunch of water, a bunch of food. Yeah, I remember when I, way back when I was in university, when I lost all of the music files which I had acquired from Napster at the time because I didn't have a backup. You mean legally acquired via ripping CDs? <laughs> um, and we had this thing called DC++, which was an internal sharing network. It was amazing. But um, my computer just blew up and I had no backup strategy. And you learn that lesson once, hopefully. I mean, people don't because I have people all the time when I was running my IT business, they would come to me and be like, the computer's blown up, what do I do? So do you have a backup? yeah, it's on this uh, USB stick. Right, let's plug that in. No, that hasn't worked for about five years and it's incredibly slow. So it's been since then, basically, that slowly, and it's just as my technical knowledge has accrued, it's exactly that. Like I use a variety of different, so I've got some ZFS, but then now I know that that's checksummed, that's on uh, ext4 in a Borg repository and I have a separate drive in a RESTIC repository, which is like a fork because... You're just increasing the redundancy, as Joe says. It's very unlikely that it all goes wrong on the same day if you've done your planning properly and you've got some of it off-site. But I don't think I come at it from an angle of like, I have to do it this way because if I don't, I'm going to get trapped. I've never, I guess I've never consciously thought about that, but it probably is what I'm doing subconsciously. Well, there's also the angle of, I think that I can speak for us all when we find that kind of stuff fun. I was going through and trying out different VPN stuff on, you know, Synology and the Unify stuff that I have, just because I found it interesting and fun and a cool way to burn a couple of hours. And not to make this into like the Synology podcast, but one of the things that I like that the Synology does really well is if I write something in Google Docs, in Google Docs format, it ends up as a .odt or a .docx file when I download it. So I'm not locked into Google Docs either. I have those documents in a format that I can consume normally. And we're kicking Google a lot here, but Apple absolutely has the same problems. It's just more likely you'll get a human on the line if you call them. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like my photos are on my phone. They're backed up with whatever weird thing Apple does when I plug the phone into my Mac. And they're on Nextcloud. And they're in an S3 bucket somewhere. So I wouldn't put that same level of trust in Apple either. It's not just Google. 
One thing to say there, Dalton, is I think you're right to say, rather than are we the baddies, we are definitely against the grain. Because if you think about someone that goes to a brick and mortar store and buys a Chromebook, they're not going to think about any of this stuff. They're just going to turn the Chromebook on. They have limited storage. So, you know, you, I think you still get 100 gigabytes for the first year after purchase if you activate your account. They are going to be put in this position. So it's weird. People are using Linux because they're afraid of like an unknown slight. But the people that aren't afraid of that probably would never dream of using Linux at all. <laughs> like It's not going to enter their head. And I think Microsoft is becoming a little bit like that now because even Windows 11 Professional is going to require a Microsoft account from the next major update and going to push you to a similar model of uh, don't just keep it here, keep it up there in the cloud, you know. So I guess we have a natural tendency towards this type of behavior anyway and a kind of healthy skepticism of anything that's approaching something that will leave you locked in. It's funny, just today I saw GitHub tweet a quote from their CEO. I think the shift to cloud will happen at such a rapid rate that in just a few years, I predict there'll be no more code on your local computer. It does feel like that. In my new job, I'm not nowhere near high enough up, but in the HPC industry, there is a big push towards the cloud. And luckily, I happen to work in a place that is very skeptical of that. And also, it costs a hell of a lot more than bare metal for some of the stuff that we're doing. And I can't see that changing for a while, but it does definitely feel like it's still a real like buzzword that is passed around. And as long as we can have the bare metal as well, then I don't mind. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. With GitHub, we'll maybe have a GitLab mirror of it on your own infrastructure as well as using GitHub. Well, I also do that for the stuff that's on GitHub. Uh, I mirror it to Gitty locally on my network as well. Not that I think that GitHub is going to go away anytime soon, but it's so low maintenance to run that. Why wouldn't I? Yep, I've decided it. We're the preppers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash L-A-D to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com L-A-D. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash L-A-D. Quick bit of admin. Thank you, everyone, who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at linuxafterdark.net slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Late Night Linux. And if you want to get in contact, the email is show at linuxafterdark.net. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Vulture. 
Go to getvulture.com slash LAD to sign up and get $200 free credit to use in 30 days. Vulture offers high-performance cloud compute, bare metal, and storage in 25 locations all over the world. You can pick from 12 operating systems, including Windows, or you can bring your own ISO. Vulture's Marketplace offers one-click installation of more than 50 applications and operating systems, including Minecraft and other game servers, VoIP and VPN platforms, content management systems like WordPress, and cPanel. Also, check out their optimized plans, CPU, memory, and storage optimized instances featuring the latest AMD Epic chips. So go to getvulture.com slash LAD to get you $200 credit and support the show. That's G-E-T-V-U-L-T-R dot com slash L-A-D. Dalton, you made us all read a book. And this book is called Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World by Cal Newport. This is essentially a self-help book, and I think there's a quite serious danger that this will devolve into us taking the piss out of you for being an American. But uh, what's the synopsis of this book? Oh, I'm ready for this. Uh, (laughs) So the idea of this book is you need some goddamn self-reflection in your life. And the way that Cal tackles this problem is by encouraging you to put down your damn phone for 20 minutes and think. Yeah. It's obviously more than that. So it's things like first take 30 days off from all technology that isn't strictly necessary for you to not lose your job or get disowned and then build back up from there with intention, figuring out what you actually want to use and what you've just been using because you were bored and trying to get out of boredom. I feel like this book could have probably been about 30 pages rather than the 300 pages that it is. If it wasn't, say, sprinkled with references to this person said this, and this president did X, and this other person did Y, then it effectively would have just been several paragraphs of advice about how to use your phone less. I fall somewhere in the middle, I think. I, it, it is too long, definitely. But one of the positive things he puts forward is quite often you do get those short blog posts which are like, I swapped my smartphone for a dumb phone. Here's the results. And there's no strategy for, it's difficult because I I didn't, nothing rang true with me either. There was one bit which made me laugh out loud where a man called Tyler put down his phone and suddenly took up the ukulele. And I just laughed out loud. I just, I thought of his family and his wife, like being really pissed off because Tyler's got the fucking ukulele out again, give him back his phone. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the thing. It does descend quite a lot into, you know, Sharon tried this and she says it's changed her life forever um, again and again and again. And I had, have had a Facebook account for six months of my life, about three years ago. I never signed up originally. I wasn't interested. My wife said, oh, it might be good for networking. Join up. I joined up and six months later, I deleted my account. I never got into it. And his conclusion goes back to Facebook. And so I don't use these things in the way that he talks about. I don't care about likes. I don't care about retweets. I barely actually post anything on these platforms. But I do think the positive aspect is that he tries to have a mindful approach. So like with any kind of compulsion or addiction, he doesn't say, oh, just get rid of everything. So what are you going to replace it with? Or if if you do feel like you have a problem with this, how are you going to modify your behavior rather than 
suppression never works. You, you know, you're going to use your phone twice as much once you get it back if you do if you do that. Well, yeah, and uh, I didn't actually read this. I listened to the audiobook, and as the guy reading that said, it's all about high quality leisure instead of low quality leisure. <laughs> Dalton, how do you say leisure? Leisure. Yeah. Oh, well, must be an American thing then. Like I said, we're going to take the piss out of you. But yeah, high quality versus low quality. And he's saying, you know, sitting there doom scrolling is not a good use of your time. Whereas maybe taking up a bit of woodworking or doing a dance class or whatever it happens to be, something that isn't just doom scrolling. That's a positive message from it. And that's all well and good. But he didn't need all those pages to say that to me. And I think I fall down in a similar place to Chris, where I don't think I use social media in the same way as other people. I have a Twitter account. I maybe check it once a week on my laptop. I don't have the app on my phone or anything. And similarly with Instagram, I have an account. People follow me on it. And I maybe check it once a month, to be honest, on the computer. It's not something that's really a problem for me. But I feel like... When people do sit and scroll through Instagram, it's not at a time where they would be going and learning to weld. Like <laughs> When my wife scrolls through Instagram, it's when she's woken up first thing in the morning, and I really doubt she's going to go outside, don her mask and welding gloves, and start making a frame to plant to grow up or something. Some of the suggestions seemed a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, there are a couple of bits that did make me laugh as well. The the idea of financial independence, I mean, going to live on a farm of like X number of acres and tilling the land and all of that stuff, I was like, there's a huge swathe of people there just just going to tell you to fuck off, to be honest. Like, that's not going to come anywhere close to there. But even an avenue of possibility that they can do. I, I did find it interesting, though, one bit that was spoken about was the default network. And he referenced Sherry Turkle, whose work I have read a lot of. She's written some really interesting books about robots and the beginnings of robots and how they've been introduced into elder care in the States and stuff. And apparently when your brain is idle, the same neurons fire as when you socialize face to face with a human being. And it's kind of a theory that proves that we're social animals to a certain degree. And that face-to-face -face communication and conversation is not the same as when you have small connections with people that aren't physical and face-to-face. -face. And I, I do think there's something in that. And that's why people get so hit up and angry on places like Twitter. And then when they make these documentaries where they confront them face-to-face -face and they say, right, you said this man is a big fat twat who can go fuck himself. And then the person just cowers because they're like, right, that man's here now. Can you just read that out to him? And they just don't want to do it. So I, I do think there is that aspect to it, but it does feel flawed in these authors. It's the same as the world beyond your head, which is another book I read where he ends up like spending 200 pages on restoring vintage organs because, you know, as in pipe organs, because that is supposedly the kind of <laughs> high point of human existence is some kind of manual work. I appreciate that a craft discipline, as a musician, for example, I appreciate succeeding in a craft discipline is very different to anything else, but I'm just not sure I'm buying the entire book as a whole. 
Well, I can tell you, as someone who put together not one but two flat pack cupboards this week, <laughs> it is immensely satisfying to do a bit of manual labor. High quality leisure. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Help, I accidentally built a shelf. <laughs> no, I followed all the instructions and the doors are wonky. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you need to get off your phone more often and go fix your, your shelves. Yeah, exactly. I did build shelves from scratch once and painted them purple and they were beautiful. And it did actually give me an immense sense of satisfaction. And that is something he talks about is like doing something with your hands, not just staring at a screen, jabbing buttons or clicking a mouse all day. And not everybody has the wherewithal, let's say, to build a shelf or whatever. They don't have necessarily the practical skills or strength or whatever. But I think that creating something even if that's just writing a poem or whatever, I think that you do need to have that outlet somehow. But I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I think that I get as much pleasure from changing the oil in my car as I do going and learning a new piece of technology. Like I remember when I first discovered Ansible and then could suddenly orchestrate all of these servers and stuff at scale. There was an immense sense of achievement there. I was still using a computer. I was still staring at a screen. And it was you know, very palpably similar to the first time I changed the brakes on my car. So I don't necessarily think that just because you, the activity you enjoy doing is on a computer, that's necessarily bad. This might be one of those things where he's a professor of computer science, where computer science nerds think that absolutely no one else would ever be interested in the same things we're interested in. <laughs> You know, someone who likes Ansible wouldn't assume that another person would like Ansible in that way. I wonder if it's a little bit of that, of, well, I like these things, but you'll probably like these things better. Yeah, I did get the sense listening to this audiobook that he doesn't quite understand how the real world works in a lot of ways. I guess it comes back to you for me as well, is that I don't feel as much a victim of these things as the case studies, which are numerous <laughs> throughout the book, which he brings up. And uh, I just think, I do see it, you know, for example, he talks about cinemas having a no uh, smartphone rule and how some chains are just giving up putting that in writing because everyone just ignores it. And there are a few which are incredibly hard about that. Now, I, I personally find it absolutely infuriating when I'm watching anything and someone gets their phone out. <laughs> I'm just like, what's the point? Why are we doing this? Like, why has this person made this thing? You're not watching it whatsoever. Especially a good piece of film or television where every aspect of that frame has been considered and you're not even looking at it. <laughs> All right, granddad. You just don't understand the multi-screen experience, do you? <laughs> I just I just can't do it. Yeah. I just I, I think that's such a waste. And to have paid to go to the cinema. And then someone does it next to you is even worse. Yeah, I agree at the cinema, that's bad. But I don't go to the cinema because that means mixing with people and I don't like people very much. <laughs> so I like to watch films at home. And I do like to look up who that actor is, what they've been in. I swear I recognize them. Oh, that's that person from that thing. And so that's just a modern way of doing things. Like if you really want to hold my attention, you've got to be really spectacular as a movie for me to not start looking up who that actor is. And I think that I am a victim of this attention economy stuff very much. Like I doom scroll Twitter a lot, but 
like Gary said, it's often when I've just woken up or when I'm otherwise not doing anything or when I'm working, for example, and I want to take a quick break, I'll have a Twitter break for five minutes just to break the monotony of editing for hours and hours and hours. But you should be using that time to learn the ukulele, Joe. I don't know what you're doing. You've obviously not taken this book in. <laughs> Why did you not start felling your uh, forest for a walking track during those five minutes, Jay? Rearing some sheep. <laughs> Are you saying that I should get my guitar down and start playing a few chords? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should do that instead next time instead of uh, doom scrolling Twitter. Well, don't forget that Cal did mention his own experience of, I think it was his weekly leisure project, was learning how to play the A-side of Meet the Beatles in its entirety on his guitar, which, again, I'm sure his his wife and children enjoyed every week. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, I think there are some very good messages in this book. I think that people who don't already know about the attention economy and the tricks that the social media companies pull on their users, would definitely get a lot of value out of the first part of the book where he lays all that stuff out. And like any self-help book, you're not necessarily going to follow it to the letter, but I think it might inspire people to maybe look at their phone a little bit less and, and not go through all these exercises and the practices, as he puts them, but actually get some value out of the book. And, you know, it's easy to take the piss out of it and everything. And it is too long, like I said many times, but I'm not pissed off that you made us read it <laughs> no i think that i got a few things from it like i probably will go out and leave my phone at home a bit more and i probably will set up an rss reader for the news and not just randomly look at the register or something so yeah there were a few things that i got from it but i feel like broadly the stuff that he talked about i was already aware of and didn't affect me but I'm also probably in a niche in being aware of that and conscious of it as a 20-something. And certainly if you are interested in more about how the attention economy grabs you and that kind of thing, there are more practical books on the topic like Evil by Design and Irresistible, which are both more about how companies have designed products to make you never put them down rather than you should put them down. Oh, that actually sounds good. So rather than this sort of preachy, you're doing it wrong, it's more a case of this is what they're doing to you, make of it what you will. They are still written by American authors, so you will probably still take the piss out of them, which I am all for. This has been great. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they are a little bit more in line with informational rather than self-help books. And if you really can't get out of the attention economy, I'm pretty sure there's a Netflix documentary about it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you all don't hate me for it and that I'm still welcome back next week. But uh, I think I will cool it on the book recommendations for a few weeks at least. Well, you can come back next week, Dalton, if you like, but we won't be here, will we? Because this show's every two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but on that bombshell then, we better get out of here. Until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. My name is Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later. <laughs>